Boy, when things get difficult sometimes, it is nice to know we have a Savior just like that, and it? That will tenderly, caringly care for us. What a blessing that is. Well, have you ever felt like that you made right choices for God, and when you made those right choices for God, things fell apart? Then you made another right choice, and it got worse. And you made another right choice, and it got worse. I hate to pop anybody's bubble in here this morning, but some of the guys on TV that tell you, you just live for God and everything's going to work out just fine. You're going to live in a big old mansion. and That's not taught in the Bible. Jesus said that he didn't have a place to lay his head. And the fact is, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. I want to say to some of these guys sometimes, I'm like, boy, if that's what kind of God you believe in, he has really shortchanged the majority of the people in the world. Right? Because the majority of people in the world, by the way, you know that most of us in this room are wealthier than about 95% of the people in the world. <laughs> um, those are facts. And you're like, I, I'm... I, I'm not that rich. I understand that. But if you own your own car, you're rich by most of the population of the world. And if you just have one accessory, which includes a nice machine in your house or a pair of golf clubs or more than a pair of golf, like five or six of them or any of that, a bicycle, that you're wealthier than 95% of the people in the world. Now this morning, I want to preach to you a message that I've entitled, Doing Right But Still Running. And I, we want to go this morning and look at the life of David. What's interesting about the life of David is this. God had anointed him king. And he had told Saul, you're done. I'm done dealing with you, removed from you, and so forth. And David's going to be the next king. And Saul knew it. And David knew it. And yet Saul tried so desperately hard to circumvent God's will that he was willing to destroy David. And so David anointed as God's king, anointed as the king over Israel and a man after God's own heart, finds himself, and by the way, not only himself but his family, running for their lives. Now, as we look through this this morning, I want to tell you that there's a danger that in the midst of doing right and running for your lives, it's easy to do wrong. It's easy to make a decision here or there that's like, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, did, did you really ask God about that? And we'll see some of that as we work along here. Simply put this morning, we must always do right. We must always do right when it's popular and when it's unpopular. When it doesn't cost us and when it does cost us. When we live or when we die. And that's not something that's just, I'm making up this morning. That has been true in the Bible from the very beginning. And Jesus made it abundantly clear to his disciples, did he not? This is what's going to happen. This is, I'm not coming here to set up a glory kingdom. I've come in here to be a servant to people, and that's exactly what you're going to be. Matter of fact, the grave majority of you will give your life for the gospel, and they did. 
The book of Acts lays out for us men who are persecuted, a church that is persecuted. Growing, yes. Victorious, yes. Persecuted, absolutely. Matter of fact, a large section of the end of the book of Acts covers what? Paul's arrest and trial. And constantly before the people and the the quote-unquote unfairness of it. Let's take our Bibles and start in 1 Samuel chapter number 20 today. 1 Samuel chapter number 20, and we're going to jump in and out of the story. Most of you are familiar at least somewhat with the majority of the story. But I want us to start here. Now, you understand what's taking place. David's been anointed. He's already killed Goliath. Um, Saul now knows that he is um, trying to, according to Saul, take over the kingdom, though David is not that way at all. Saul sees him as his chief rival, and so he's begun to not only try to kill him himself, but he's instructed his men, listen, you need to take this guy down. He's married off a daughter to try to get her to deceive him. I mean, this guy is really ruthless, okay? We pick up here kind of in the middle of the story with Jonathan. Now, you also know something about Jonathan. By the way, Jonathan is my favorite obscure character in the Word of God. He was an incredible young man, incredible loyal young man. I mean, and, perce- I mean he, and we're going to find some things as we unfold this. It's really funny, I think, about this story. What a tenacious guy, a guy of courage, a guy that did right, and a guy that though he knew his dad was wrong, died with him anyway. Now, pretty, pretty amazing. All right, we pick up this story in verse 30 here. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said unto him, Thou son of the perverse, rebellious woman. That's probably healthy for a marriage, isn't it? I don't recommend you do that in your marriage, just so you know. (laughs) Do not I know that thou hast chosen the son of Jesse to thine own confusion and unto the confusion of thy mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse liveth upon the ground, thou shalt not be established nor thy kingdom. Wherefore now send and fetch him unto me, for he shall surely die. Jonathan answered Saul his father, and he said unto him, Wherefore shall he be slain? What hath he done? And Saul cast a javelin at him to smite him, whereby Jonathan knew that it was determined of his father to slay David. Don't you love how the Bible says things sometimes? It's like, well, my dad just threw a javelin at me. You know, I think my dad's not happy with David. You know, it's like, wow, I love some of those things. First thing I want us to see this morning as we work through this story is, number one, men living in sin will do just about anything. You think about this. Here's a man who has allowed his anger to so enrage him that not only does he say some very disparaging things about one of his wives, but he tries to kill his own son. A son, by the way, who's done nothing but prove loyal to him. Now, did Jonathan care about the throne? You know, don't miss this. Jonathan was more concerned about God's will than he was about what he was supposed to get. Because he's going to say to David later on, my dad knows that you're going to be king and I know you're going to be king and when so, I'm going to be your right-hand man. 
Now, we know that Jonathan never got that chance. But that was his attitude. And the truth is, when men sin, they will do anything. Please don't miss this point this morning, okay? I've had guys say to me, well, I would never fill in the blank. Every single person in this room, apart from God, is capable of anything. It's only God's grace. And it's only the choices that are made with that aligns with this word that keeps us from doing that. All of us in this room could probably tell stories of people that we know that were either in the ministry or in Bible colleges or whatever, and they've done the most heinous things. And what happened? They started drifting from God. We know that from Joseph's brothers, don't we? How could men be so angry because a guy told a dream that you're willing to throw him in a pit, potentially murder him, and ultimately sell him into slavery and be okay with that? Wow. 1 Samuel 21 and verse 2. Let's turn over here. We're just kind of walk through this a little bit. 1 Samuel chapter 21 and verse 2. It says, And David said unto Amalek, the priest, The king hath commanded me a business, and hath said unto me, Let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee. And what I have commanded thee, and I have appointed my servant to such and such a place. Now, therefore, what is under thine hand? Give me five loaves of bread in mine hand, or what there is present. Now jump over to chapter 22 and verse 18. We'll come back to this story again here in a minute. And the king said to Doag, Turn thou and fall upon the priest. Let's just fill in a little bit of the gaps here. What happens? Well, Ahimelech has no idea that David has lied to him. By the way, David does lie. He says, I'm on the king's business, and it requires haste, and so forth and so on. David was actually fleeing for his life. Now, it's possible. Matter of fact, I personally believe that David did this to try to protect Ahimelech. I don't, want, I don't think David wanted to tell him what was going on because then he was potentially liable. I think that's what David did. I really don't know. But it was still wrong for David to do. Okay. Now, now we come down here because Doag, the Edomite, the scoundrel, happened to be present when Ahimelech helped David. Ahimelech comes before Saul and says, Saul, I had no idea. Isn't he one of your choice servants? Like, he told me he was on an errand for you. How was I supposed to do any better? By the way, how was he supposed to do any better? At this point, by the way, in the story, we're early on in the story, the entire kingdom doesn't know that Saul has lost his mind. They will eventually know that, okay? But they don't know it yet. Well, the king said to Doeg, Turn thou and fall upon the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned, and he fell upon the priest, and slew on that day eighty-five persons that did wear the Elin and Ephod. Innocent priest he slaughtered. And Nob, the city of the priest, smote he with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and sucklings, oxen, ass, sheep, with the edge of the sword. He just slaughtered them. Verse 20, and one of the sons of Himelech, the son of Atub, 
named Abathar escaped and fled after David. And Abathar showed David that Saul had slain the Lord's priest. And David said unto Abathar, I knew it that day when Doag the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of thy father's house. Abide thou with me, fear not, for he that seeketh my life seeketh thy life. And with me thou shalt be in safeguard. The second truth this morning is sin always cost, even when times seem to justify it. It would be easy for David to justify what he did. And perhaps he had a good motive. But the fact is, he did lie to Ahimelech, and Ahimelech helped him. Now, ultimately, Saul should have listened. Ultimately, the slaughter of them. But my, my point is this. We don't always know the long range. And the truth is, we just need to do what's right. This was, in this period of David's running, by the way, it, it's one of the few times that we find where David actually slipped in his character a little bit. Most of the time, even if it cost him greatly, David sticks to what is right. But it cost him. It cost Moses, didn't it? To enter the promised land. You could understand, at least I could understand, and I think most of you could, that leading one and a half to three million griping, complaining people would get you frustrated every once in a while. And what does he do? He strikes the rock instead of speaking to the rock as God told him to, and God never let him enter the promised land. Point number three. Let's look at chapter 21 and verse 7. I told you we'd come back to this story a little bit. 21 and verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doag, an Edomite, the chiefest of the herdmen that belonged to Saul. Look at chapter 22, verses 8 through 10. That all of you have conspired against me, and there is none that showeth me that my son hath made a league with the son of Jesse, and there is none of you that is sorry for me, or showeth unto me that my son hath stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. Bless his heart. Nobody feels sorry for him. This is, I don't even talk about this this morning, but this is pretty pathetic of a guy that's supposed to be the leader, right? Then answered Doag, the Edomite, which was set over the servants of Saul, and said, I saw the son of Jesse come into Nob to Amalek, the son of Ateb. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him victuals and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Well, that was true because David said, hey, I'm on the king's haste. This is something that's happening. We've already read 18 and 19 where he kills uh, those people. Um, look at chapter 23, verses 9 through 12. David knew that Saul secretly practiced mischief against him, and he said to Abathar the priest, Bring hither the ephod. And then said David, O Lord God of Israel, thy servant hath certainly heard that Saul seeketh to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me up into his hand? Will Saul come down as thy servant hath heard? O Lord God of Israel, I beseech thee, tell thy servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then said David, Will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will deliver thee up. Now here's the third truth that I want us to see this morning. There will always be people who will stab you in the back. All right, thanks for the encouragement this morning, Pastor. <laughs> I don't mean that as a negative thing. I'm just telling you, that there will always be people that you think are your friends, that you think are there for good reasons, 
and they're not. Now, does that mean that we are to walk around all the time looking for them? No, I, I don't know. We don't to do that, okay? We're to do right. That's the point of the message, right? Do right no matter what happens. But there's going to come time when people are going to do that which you don't think they'll do. And it, it's heartbreaking. And David, here's David, particularly in the thing with Keilah. And of course, Doeg is a whole other story. But in the men of Keilah here, David has been there and he's protected them and they've been kind to him and all this kind of stuff. And David's like, I don't know about all this. And Lord, is he coming? Yep, he's coming. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Yep, he will. Oh boy, I'm out of here. <laughs> David, David leaves. By the way, in Judges chapter 9, Abimelech killed 69 of 70 of his own brothers. Of his own brothers to try to get it to the throne. By the way, the one he didn't kill ended up bringing revival to Israel, but that's a whole other story. Look at chapter 23 and verse 14. We're just hitting the highlights of this story, really. And David abode in the wilderness in strongholds and remained in the mountain in the wilderness of Sif. And Saul sought him every day, but God delivered him not into his hand. Number four truth, God will be your protection from the enemy. Years ago, I heard someone say this, but it is so true. You are invincible in the will of God until God is done with you. When you're in the center of God's will and he's, he's got a purpose for you to be there, you're invincible. Why? Is that a cocky statement? No, it's a statement on the authority, the power, and the protection of the God that we serve. And we, we could tell you story after story after story, modern day stories of men and ladies that have been protected supernaturally from situations because God wasn't done with them yet. And David, when he decided to place his faith in the Lord and his protection there, God continued to protect him. Do you know what's interesting? Was David really threatened to be killed? Now on the surface you're going to say, of course, I mean, Saul was out to kill him. That's what he was after. But was there really a threat there? I'm going to tell you why there wasn't. Because God had already told David he was going to rule on the throne, and he hadn't ruled on the throne yet, and guess what? God knows what he's talking about. <laughs> Dave, I'm, by the way, I'm not saying that David needed to step out in front of a Mack truck. I realize they weren't back then, but you get the illustration, right? It's not one of those things where you're like, well, amen, I'm just, I'm just going to do whatever. no. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that we don't have to live in fear because ultimately God is the protection. We, we can think of Daniel in the lion's den, can't we? Well, the writing's signed, but guess what I'm going to do? I'm not going to do it, by the way, in defiance of the government order when I hadn't done it before. Okay. What I am going to do is what I've done exactly for years now. By the way, Daniel had probably been in Babylon already close to 70 years, maybe a little more. And as his pattern was aforetime, I would argue that all these years, Daniel had done the same thing. At that window, praying towards Jerusalem, three times a day, 
as he had always done. How did these guys know that they could get him with that? Because they knew his pattern. He didn't hide it. So David did write, guess, I mean, uh, Daniel did write, and guess what? He got thrown in a lion's den. But it didn't seem to bother him. It didn't bother him overall, but it's like, man, I love that story, right? I, I've often said I would be just a little cantankerous. Like when the king comes the next morning and says, Oh, Daniel, thou God would shout, did he deliver you? I'd have just paused for a little bit. <laughs> Let him just get a little nervous that I'm not there, but I don't, know that, I don't know that he did that. He just said, Oh, king, live forever. Yes, God delivered me. The fact is, were these lions hungry? Were they some kind of special tamed lion? Well, that night they were. But they weren't overall because we know when the other guys get thrown in, the Bible says that every bone in their body was crushed before they hit the bottom. That's pretty amazing. God will protect you from the enemy. Number five. This is one of my favorite parts of this story, okay? Now remember, all this time Saul is desperately searching for David. Every time someone gives a rumor, he is desperately searching for him. He's trying to find him in the straw, all this kind of stuff. Verse 16. And Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David into the wood and strengthened his hand in God. It's like whenever somebody wanted to find him, that God wanted to find him, Jonathan knew exactly where he was, right? I'm just going to go there. And strengthened his hand in God. Don't you love, by the way, there's a whole message there about friends. And the right kind of godly friends that will strengthen your hand in God. Notice what Jonathan says in verse 17. And he said unto him, fear not. David, don't, don't live in fear. For the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find thee. And thou shalt be king over Israel, and I shall be next unto thee. And that also my father knoweth. And they two made a covenant before the Lord. And David abode in the wood, and Jonathan went to his house. Number five, true friends encourage us in the Lord. True friends encourage us in the Lord. Boy, did David need this at this point. Jonathan, by the way, didn't bring David some kind of military strategy. They didn't sit down and Jonathan say, hey, look, David, I'm going to go back to my dad and I'm going to tell him that you're headed X place or whatever it might be. Jonathan encouraged David in the Lord. He said, David, you're going to be king. Don't be afraid. God's anointed you king. You're going to do that. And I'm going to be next to you. My dad already knows that you're going to be king. That's why he's so desperately pursuing you. I said a couple of weeks ago, it, it always blows my mind that not only would Saul disobey God and disobey God and disobey God until God said, okay, I'm going to remove you from the kingdom but knowing what God's will was, he not only would not be willing to do it, but he would actively oppose it. Do you know what Saul should have done? Saul should have said, I'm wrong. God's removed me from the kingdom. David, I know that you're the next king. I know God has anointed you as next king. And whatever I can do to help you be a successful king over these people that God has entrusted us with, I will do that. That's not what he did. Let me kill David. But David couldn't be killed because he was in the center of God's will. 
We can think of another Bible example of the, of the man Barnabas. Wouldn't you love for a New Testament church that numbers 10, 15,000 at this point to have a nickname for you and its encourager? What did the church know this guy as? Before he became, quote unquote, popular as the partner of Saul, that would turn Paul, what was he already known as? That guy's the encourager. Man, don't you love to be around people like that? When you walk away from someone like that, you just feel like on cloud nine. Like, it, it really is amazing. That's who Barnabas was. All right, number six. Let's turn over to chapter 24. Verses five through seven. Now, let's go back and read verse one. I think, I think it's important to get the context. It came to pass when Saul was returned from following the Philistines, that it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. And Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. By the way, that would not have been an easy military campaign, by the way. if you just Don't you love how the Holy Spirit gives you these little truths here, you know, the rocks of the wild goats? And he came to the sheep coats by the way, where was a cave. And Saul went in to cover his feet, and David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. And the men of David said unto him, Behold, the day of which the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. Then David arose, cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privately. And it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him, because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And he said unto his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth mine hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David stayed his servants with his words and suffered them not to rise against Saul. But Saul rose up out of the cave and went on his way. And David arose afterwards and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. And David said to Saul, Wherefore hearest thou men's words, saying, Behold, David seeketh thy hurt. Behold, this day thine eyes have seen how that the Lord hath delivered thee to, today into mine hand in the cave, and some bade me kill thee, but mine eyes spared thee. And I said, I will not put forth mine hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Number six truth this morning is always honor authority even when they're wrong. Now, I want to I make something clear here. I am not saying that we help authority cover up known sin or that we not report things that should be reported, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that David understood that at this point if God wanted David to be in the position that he was anointed for God was capable of removing Saul. And at this point God had not done so. So at this point he was still God's anointed. Was he wrong? Absolutely. Was he acting like God's anointed? No, he was not. But David had determined, I'm not going to place myself in a position until God places me in that position. David wasn't self-serving. By the way, the perfect example of this is his son Jonathan, Saul's son Jonathan. I don't understand all that went into Jonathan's mind. 
I don't know why the night before the battle, Jonathan would not have slipped away knowing that the nation was going to be defeated the next day, knowing that his dad had stooped so low that he inquired of a witch, knowing that for some reason God allowed that witch to communicate to Samuel and Samuel said, you're gone tomorrow. I don't think anybody would have blamed Jonathan for walking out and said, I'm sorry, Dad, you're wrong. God told you you're wrong. Now the witch has told you you're wrong. Your men know you're wrong. I know you're wrong. I'm not staying here any longer. But Jonathan didn't do that. He stayed by his side. Amazing. Hey, let me give you a little secret that if you don't know, this will help you. Every single authority on this earth will be wrong. They have been before and they will be in the future. Ladies, your husband's going to be wrong. Right, men? <laughs> All of us men can point to specific situations. And if you can't, she can. She remembers that time that she tried to help you and you wouldn't listen, right? I won't ask the teens in here how many of them think their parents have been wrong. But I can tell you what the parents will say. Yes, we have. Sometimes we know it. Sometimes we don't know it. Sometimes we figure out, ah, that kid we disciplined, they didn't actually do it. <laughs> we found later that such and such happened, or whatever it might be. Or we spoke in haste. We spoke in anger. We made an accusation that wasn't, whatever it may be. Again, please understand, I am not justifying those things. I'm not trying to polish that over as if that's not a big deal. Good, godly authorities are quick to say, I was wrong. Now again, let me make another bold statement here. If you as a husband and a parent, or as a wife even for that matter, have never said that to people you lead, can I tell you you're wrong? Now, wait a minute, Pastor, what, what do you mean by that? Because the only other option is that you're infallible. And guess what I know about that? Uh, the Bible calls you wrong. It's important. I, I've, I've actually talked to people who they're dealing with authorities who will never admit they're wrong. You can point it out to them. I, years ago, uh, in the youth department, we had a young lady whose parents consistently defended her no matter what. And literally, myself and my wife, and I think it was nine youth staff members, it may have been 11, but there were a bunch of us. All saw her do it. We all saw it. And the mom was like, my daughter wouldn't do that. And I'm like, Ma'am, not only did Lisa and I see it, but the entire youth staff, I want to talk to them. Okay, I brought all the youth staff in. All of them. Yep, we did it. You know what the mom said? Nope, not my daughter. You're like, really? Like 11 witnesses? There's enough here to convict you in a court of law, let alone anywhere else, right? The fact is, it's good for us to admit when we're wrong because we're going to be. 
But just simply because an authority is wrong doesn't mean that we can totally disregard that authority. Be careful. Be careful with that. Number seven, chapter 24 and verse 12. Chapter 24 and verse 12. The Bible says, The Lord judge between me and thee, and the Lord avenge me of thee, but my hand shall not be upon thee. The seventh truth was God is the judge of people. In other words, David was content to say, I'm going to let God be God. I'm going to let God be judge. God's got all this figured out, and he knows exactly what he's doing. And if he's patient and long-suffering more than I think he should be, I'm going to let him be God. That's really what David's saying. God's going to judge. Do you remember Joseph after he finally gets to his brothers and the story keeps going along and now the dad's dead and we're at the end of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50. Joseph makes this statement. Am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? I've said often to young people who are contemplating marrying outside their parents' wishes. Often said to them, let God be God. God can direct your parents. What if my parents don't want to do what's right? Do you believe God's sovereign or not? Do you believe God's in control or not? See, I just happen to believe that the king's heart's in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. It doesn't say the godly king's in the hand of the Lord. It says the king's. Did God use wicked men in the Old Testament to accomplish his will? Matter of fact, isn't that what the book of Habakkuk is about? We're studying that in Sunday school right now, aren't we? And what does God say to Habakkuk finally? He says, Habakkuk, whoa, whoa, calm down. I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to use Babylon. What? Now, if we were in modern day language, that's exactly what Habakkuk said. Are you out of your mind? That's basically, if, I mean, it doesn't actually say that in the Hebrew. I'm just saying in our vernacular. That's what it, and then he says, I'm going to stand here and wait for God to rebuke me. Like I went way over the line with this. But that's basically what Habakkuk's saying, isn't it? God can use things. God knows exactly what he's doing. And he can orchestrate it all together. And when you try to step outside of what he has commanded, then you don't know for sure if it's God's will. Trust God. He can work. God is the judge of people. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 17 through 19. And he said to David, Thou art more righteous than I, for thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded thee evil. And thou hast shown this day that thou, how that thou wast dealt well with me. For as much as when the Lord hath delivered me into thine hand, thou killest me not. For if a man find his enemy, will he let him go well away? Wherefore the Lord reward thee good for that thou hast done unto me this day. And now behold, I know well that thou shalt surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in thine hand. By the way, wouldn't it be wonderful if Saul continued to live that way? But he doesn't. 
He knew exactly what God's will was. Number eight and last, rewarding good for evil is God's way of doing things. What does Saul say here? You rewarded good for the evil that I have done to you. If we don't believe that, Proverbs 17 and verse 13, Whoso rewardeth evil for good, evil shall not depart out of his house. That's the flip side of that, okay? But Proverbs 25, verse 21, If thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he be thirsty, give him water to drink. For thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head, and the Lord shall reward thee. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 15, See thou none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Romans 12 and verse 20, Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him, and if he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. That is much easier said than done, isn't it? (laughs) When someone does something to you, you're not thinking in that moment to do something good back to them. When your neighbor chops down your favorite tree because he thinks it's hanging over his yard, baking him some cookies without arsenic in it is not what you're thinking about right then, right? But the truth is, the Bible says that's the way to approach things. Boy, could we use a dose of that today, couldn't we? Not just in America in general, but we could but in our churches. We not only can't do good for people, we can't even speak good to people. If we disagree with them, we just chop them off at the ankles. Like, we're done with you, right? Can I just tell you, that's so anti-Bible. It's not what God's asked us to do. You're like, well, you don't know who this guy is? Yeah, he's an enemy. Exactly, right? What does the Word of God say? How did David respond? How did Saul respond when David responded that way? Now, again, Saul eventually goes back to his old ways. But David waits on God. By the way, this wasn't a couple of months. This was years. It gets so bad that David eventually has to try to go find refuge with the Philistines. He moves his family to another country because Saul is so hounding him. Now, I don't know about you, but I ask the question, Lord, why'd you wait so long? I don't know the answer to that. It goes again along with our Sunday school lesson that we'll get back to next week, Lord willing. But I do know this. I do know that God is long-suffering and merciful. And it's the whole reason Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh anyway, isn't it? God, if I go there, and these people are ruthless people, and I've watched them kill my own relatives, and Lord, do do you know that these people would skin people alive? Do you know their palaces actually have hanging skin as part of their palace decorations, Lord? Do you know who that's? That's who these people are. And if I go there and preach the gospel to them, then they might want to repent. And if they do, you're just long-suffering enough to let them, and I don't want that. If you think that's an exaggeration, 
It's not. Because not only was Jonah willing to run, but when he finally preached and they finally repented, he sits outside the city waiting for God to do what? Judge them. That's not the economy of God. Does it always make sense? Nope. Might you do right and run? Yep. Might you do right and it look horrible? Yep. There's a book in heaven. And God's going to make it all right. And that really is what we have to rest in. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to apply truths that are far easier talked about than they are lived. And we'll thank you for that. In your name we pray.